You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features lifestyle, experiential, and brand marketing director, Janisa Babb. A native of Trinidad, Janisa grew up in a thriving immigrant community in New York. She took an early interest in the arts, and despite limited financial resources, she found ways to hone her talents. And she brought that same energy to Colgate University, where she leveraged her involvement on campus to land her first full-time job opportunity at a marketing and advertising agency. But little did Janisa know that this job would eventually be the source of work trauma, which culminated with her being abruptly let go. But after that termination, she found what she describes as her dream job, marketing within luxury spirits. After some time, another opportunity presented itself. It seemed like a logical and lucrative next step. So Janisa seized the moment, unaware that she'd end up laid off in less than a year. And this is just part one of her story. So please take a listen. Janisa, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. We were just talking earlier about how when you have something important to do, that's when your computer wants to act crazy. Um, (laughs) yes, it happens more often than not with guests and us. Like we don't do the setup, you know, same setup every week. Um, so we're used to it, but let's hope technology plays nice. Uh, I'm here for that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So let's get right into it. Who is Janisa Babb? I am a talkative, passionate, um, ball of energy that has a zest for life and experiences. Um, I think growing up, um, funny to hear stories of me, like not really knowing how to read, but like pretending to be an actress on a balcony to put on a show or like always interested in what the adults were saying. And I think as I've grown into an adult, I've always been this very like interesting energy that everyone's like, oh, you are such a vibe. Didn't know what that meant. But as I've gotten deeper into my 30s, I have an appreciation for that statement and defining it for myself. So let's talk about that, because especially for black children, you know, growing up, when you hear ball of energy often, you know, we're told to sit down somewhere. Right. Like, why are you why are you all over the place? Why are you on level 10? But for you, was that encouraged that side of you who was maybe into the arts or loved to perform or just kind of be out in the open? Was that encouraged? Yeah, I think I was always just a curious kid, to be honest. Um, and I think my mom is just also a woman of like amazing energy and vigor as well. So she would match with interesting stories that, you know, as we've grown into adults are some lies that our parents tell us to keep us going. They are of that generation. Um, in other instances, I think my parents definitely tried their best to encourage anything I wanted to do. Um, I sometimes didn't leave them a choice because I would find my own way to make sure that happened. That solved my own problem. <laughs> that also leads into some of my adult stories. So um, my mom used to dance a lot as a kid. So in our my grandmother's house in Trinidad, there were tons of like, she has little um, photo albums everywhere. Um, and she, you know, I would look and my mom was into everything. So that's my example growing up that my mom was modeling. Like she competed to be Miss Trinidad and Tobago. She played soccer. She was dancing disco and all these different things. So like that is your image growing up. So as I got older, that was just like, my hero, you know, I want to do all the things my mom did, all of the performative, um, all of the interesting. Um, and she was so charismatic um, to me as a woman growing up. So it was challenging. 
because they didn't have the money to do all the things in America. <laughs> but, you know, in Trinidad, it's different because they have invested in like the culture and the arts in, you know, per community um, at that time down there. So coming here to the U.S., I definitely wanted um, to be a dancer like my mom and I couldn't go to dance school. One, my mom had a work schedule, did not work. Um, so did my stepdad. Um, so I kind of poured into that creative part of me um, during school. So step team, any dance recital I can like be a part of. I volunteered a lot to be in all the activities. Was always in like little, you know, running for president or running for like communications or something in the school. Um, and then, you know, eventually fell into sports kind of because my mom was like, you don't really have a choice here. <laughs> but, you know, eventually really enjoyed that as well. And I think I just liked you know, being around people and learning something different. Um, so I guess it was encouraged to an extent, um, to the best of my parents' abilities. Um, through those avenues, I was able to, you know, find resources where my parents would put some money together to get me to, you know, go and do things that are that were very different than other um, other kids that I grew up with, and definitely some of my family members. So you emigrated to the states at age five. Is that correct? Yeah. So what do you what do you remember about that, if if anything, like from a cultural shift to, you know, you mentioned sort of the resources there and not here. Was it clear to you moving to the States at that age to your recollection, like, oh, this is different. Like, this is not home. How did you feel about it? Honestly, I think with being a child, it was traumatic. Right. When you go through Mm -hmm. trauma, you kind of shelve it away. I don't have any um, crazy stories of not feeling, um, a part of a group. I, you know, was fortunate where I, I tell all my friends, I'm like, literally guys, I moved from a foreign country, but I also moved into a very immigrant community. So all of us were foreigners. We either were first generation. There were some kids that didn't speak English. You know, there were a, lot, a bunch of Asian kids or Spanish kids. There was also Caribbean children. So I was able to kind of find a bit of tribe. And I always have been this kind of just individualistic type of human where like, I didn't really care where I was, um, you know, and I kind of would just make friends or less kind of friendly. So I didn't feel out of the loop. I think I made the best of it. Um, I knew that, and in my story, my mom moved a year before me. Um, Mm. as you heard in my previous statement, she was kind of my, like my BFF kind of go-to person. Um, so I think I was just more than happy to just be around my mom and be reunited with her. I did, as I got older and towards middle school, like started to feel a difference. So about fourth or fifth grade, um, you know, I ended up going to school with one of my, like, till this day, one of my childhood friends. And we really became friends because our parents went to high school together in Trinidad. And they're like, ah, we have children the same age. Okay, put y'all together. <laughs> y'all can be friends. Okay, and y'all can walk home together. So to the point where in like third grade, we like her family lived on the bottom floor and my mom was on the second floor of like a house apartment situation. And we would like go to school together. And like fourth or fifth grade, you know, I think that's when kids are preteens. And um, I never grew up in a situation where like I wore a lot of name brands. My, my family over overindulged in out of school clothing. So I was fly with express jeans and like, you know, nine West full leather outfits that I think kids my age probably never really had. But when I went to school, I didn't look like that. Mm. <laughs> I had one budget, you know, the one school jacket every year, the one sneaker. And at, at fourth or fifth grade and preteen years, people started to make fun of you not wearing Fila or Reebok and Nike. So I think that's when I started to recognize the difference. And I started to kind of um, you know, talked to my mom about it. And she was like, listen, you know, if you go to a party, da, 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 and kind of gave me the rundown, I was like, fine. 
So now that we have a school party, can I wear the specific outfit I want to wear? Because I need to, I need to flex. <laughs> and she's like, no, I said, come on, like, look at these kids. Like, let me, you know, show them that like, okay, yes, because I have this jacket and not this jacket. I'm not. And I think that was the first time I felt the difference because in the Caribbean, everyone wears a uniform. Mm-hmm. And you kinda, so you have house, like it's doesn't you have house clothes, you have school clothes, and then you have going out clothes. Most of the time you're around house clothes. And when you're in somebody's, you know, visiting family or going to anything, you have, you know, the going out clothes. And that's how I grew up. Um, so that, that was the first time I felt the difference from an academic standpoint. For me, it was no different, I think, because I still went to middle school with like immigrant kids. And we're all very competitive. Um, I've always, always been pretty smart. Um, but always overzealous to the point where the teacher puts me next to the kid that is a little too hyper. And I did not have patience for that. Um, I did not want somebody to interrupt me doing what I needed to do <laughs> in my timeline. <laughs> you know, always been a kind of a type A. Um, so I kind of struggle with that in someone disrupting my space, um, you know, not learning how to like process those types of like human interactions. Um, and then as I got older and older, I ended up going to um, a prep school for high school. So I kind of did like kind of magnet schools um, or community schools. And as I got older, more magnet application kind of schools in New York. And then um, through sports, I ended up getting an opportunity to go to poly prep, which is like really amazing elite school in New York City. Um, And it's called poly prep country day school. (laughs) But we did not sleep on campus. We all like went took the yellow bus till we were graduates, basically. Um, And that's where I felt a different culture shift. wasn't around as much immigrant kids as, as I was anymore. I, I was definitely around, you know, way more white children, way more affluence. Um, and I kind of started to notice it. And I think I didn't go towards opening up towards those spaces, um, you know, right away. I think I stuck to my, you know, small group of friends through my sports, you know, situation. Or, you know, I met my best friend like the first day in Spanish class and she was an immigrant kid like me. Um, and, you know, I think... You know, I kind of met so many different types of people through activities. I started to like get to know people and I started to kind of notice the difference there. Um, But I kind of have always been a person to just like, all right, you see the difference, like level set. But another huge, actual real huge culture shift for me was when I went to college. And that was between just between black folk, to be quite Mm -hmm. honest. Um, So, again, I went to um, Colgate University. It's like a pretty prestigious liberal arts school. Rumor has it that back in the day it could have been Ivy, but they did it because they didn't want to do sports part of it. And that's where I met kind of a different group of white, you know, white students um, and young adults where most of them came from New England, where they probably never went to school with a black kid, probably may have had one Asian kid. And probably if that had a Hispanic kid at all, who may not even speak Spanish. So, and then two, that's the, the first time I interacted with like African-Americans from the South mostly. And my stepdad is from, you know, he's from Pennsylvania, but his, you know, extended family's from the South. But like we hung out mostly with my mom and her family. Um, so, and interacting with people my own age. So I'm like, that's what I heard, you know, down South rap <laughs> coming from New York City <laughs> and watching, you know, everybody talking with a country twang. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And majority of the Black students were... African-American Southern descent. Um, There was a bunch of kids in the city too, but they were African-American, not Caribbean or immigrant descent or nothing. So I was a part of a a small group. I mean, within the school, we had like a CSA, which is the Caribbean Student Association. Um, I more readily joined the BSA, African-American Student Association, Black Student Union. Um, But that's where I started to like really understand the differences. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also hear my my schoolmates kind of talk about their differences because I've also been around white kids quite often. So I didn't really get shocked, but I also didn't have to live in environments where, you know, you're sharing bathrooms and everyone's curious about your hair, curious about, you know, your habits and just like, you know, different things. Um, so, yeah, I think that was probably my last route of culture shock per se from a cultural lens until I became an adult and was different. Yeah. And, you know, so people who listen to this show often will know that we've had the country day talks uh, on these episodes because I went to a country day school through eighth grade as well. Right. (laughs) So I know everything you're talking about. It sounds like yours might have been more diverse than mine, which is probably a nod to the city um, versus the suburbs. But like that was when I first understood like long money. Right. You, You knew long money from like TV, you know, celebrities, but people living in the same county or community as you who are third generation affluence or, or, or longer or whose families are known for something. Um, and, and I find in talking to people who have experienced those environments, even as children, sometimes as adults are still triggered by the otherness or uh, you know, access to opportunity or structural inequality in a way that maybe other people aren't because it really is in your face. And then others, it mm-hmm. motivates them to see what's possible, right? Having had access to um, that level of wealth or or opportunity, what bucket do you think you fall into? I definitely fall into the bucket of like seeing this as exploration. Mm-hmm. I think honestly, at a young age and going back and forth to Trinidad quite often, you kind of just see the haves and have nots, right? But you don't feel like you don't eat at the same for a cultural reference, eat at the same roti shop, right? We're going to go to the same roti shop. Yes, they have this, yes, they have that, but like it doesn't make as much different. And I think, you know, coming from my high school environment, it was very diverse. I think it was unique because we had this um, inner school called Deus. Like a diversity group that was started by parents who had children that went through a prep for prep program. Mm. Um, so a lot of the kids that I went to high school with that were, you know, blacker students of color came through prep for prep, or they started prep for prep. Like so, prep for prep started like sixth or seventh grade, and they kind of struggled the most, in my opinion, when it came to like kind of understanding um, that level set, and only got probably used to it in high school. So I came in not prep for prep, just like applied and got blessed. Um, in ninth grade, similar to my best friend, I think we just took, the, and we went, to, we went to college together. We took the same approach, like we have this access, so let's just explore it. And I think where I've, I kind of sometimes fall into the trigger mode is like access to alumni. Mm. Um, and I've always, you know, when I was, when I was a student at Colgate in college, I, I definitely was in the career services like every, every month like trying to meet alums, like just trying to learn. So I think because I've been that way, um, I know the access to things, but as I'm an adult and far removed, it's like, mm, now I have to start reaching out to folks that like, I have to kind of turn the switch on, you know, from the authentic self and just still trying to find that middle ground there. Um, in my career, I've kind of worked heavily in multicultural marketing or, you know, on brands and situations where I'm mostly working with people of color, (laughs) you know, or people who understand culture. So, you know, I've never had to step into the corporate world as much. Um, I've, I've started that way. Um, so I think that I've always used this as an opportunity. Um, it just, that struggle for me is like when I go ask 
for like the same thing someone who doesn't look like me asked for it, right? Um, it feels a little different. Um, the pressure is different. Um, the the imposter syndrome kind of like switches in a little bit um, when you reach out in the same vein. So like trying to find like that middle ground and like that sameness with the person, like trying to find that unifying point and be like, we went to the same school, but like also what'd you do? Probably totally different for me. <laughs> so um, yeah, a little bit of both, but I think mostly just the curiosity part for me. Yeah. And I think too, it goes without saying, you know, that there's the imposter syndrome piece, but there's also, you would think that when you have this commonality of an alumni network, you went to the same school that you get like an automatic pass, right? Like, oh, we went, you know, we went to the same school, maybe a less, less level of, a lower level of scrutiny or something. But I find not all the time, but often there is still that divide where it's like, we both hold a degree from the same institution. You would think you're going to open the gate for me, right? Or at least have a more uh, open approach or attitude to, to the ask. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case. And when I talk to my white counterparts uh, about their experiences, leaning on alumni networks for, again, asks, asks that are often bigger than what we asked for, it's a different experience for them. Mm-hmm. It's like almost an immediate stamp of approval because of that common educational background. And I think, yes. And part of me, as I'm in this new kind of season for myself, is also wondering if I'm just not manifesting the way Mm -hmm. I should be, right? Coming with the same energy of privilege and access because I still have it, right? And I'm probably smarter, more more connected in different ways than my white counterparts. You know, they're asking the same questions. You know, I started working a month out of college. Um, You know, I have probably way more experience in my specific lane than probably my counterparts who probably have shifted around trying to figure it out. It's just that they have had access so, so much longer and been able to flex that muscle that, I think that um, that is how I, f- I feel sometimes. Like, they just don't really care. They just, like, go for it. And you're like, you already know you have your generation on your back, like, your family. Like, you have all of your stigma. They just have their personal stigma. And, like, they're like, I'm going to go for it. Um, and I think that that is unfortunate, but a fact in everything that we do and how mm-hmm. we approach stuff. And I think, like, the more and more I try to shrug off that kind of, mental block for myself, the less I feel. Um, but two, there's so much validity in what you said, because what I may find to be an amazing, you know, experience in my college years is not a unifier for someone who might connect me to a job, right? You know, I, I would have had to have gone to a certain amount of football games. I would have like had to have went to a certain amount of frat or sorority parties. Like I would have to know the things by name. Like there are things that are part of our experiences that, that are just different. And it's always going to be that imposter syndrome, not going to lie. Right. Like, you know, and, and I, we're just not used to, as Black people, asking for the most. We aren't. Um, I think we're starting to get into a new development, a new time of doing that. Unfortunately, it's coming from white guilt. <laughs> and I wish right. it would just come from genuine, like, equal parts, you know? Like, we all, like, have different types of experiences. But also as adults in the world just trying to figure it out, like, we also have a different set of, you know, that, the different sets of experiences that we can still unify each other. Um, that's my hopefulness. I'm a very hopeful person, <laughs> you know, playing with a Pisces in me, but you know, that's how I feel. Um, I just try to practice that muscle as much as possible of just asking for the gusto or like just going for it. Um, and using the finesse that I've learned through my mom, through my grandmother, 
through, you know, colleagues and professionally to, you know, get that connecting point um, and the access to it. Um, I think there's something to say and like going on a tangent, there's something to say about like references, Mm -hmm. right? Your last name. Who do you know? Who are your contacts? Um, And that is something I think we have as Black folk and people of color have a a huge step behind um, in in having access to it. Um, But if we work smart, things will work in our, our benefit. So I have a really close friend who literally has gotten five out of her seven jobs post-university. She's a she's a Black woman, half African-American and half Nigerian descent, who's got five out of seven jobs from white men using our mm-hmm. alumni network. Um, and that's because she was like, girl, I just go for it. Um, and I'm like, okay. And she went to, she went to a, um, a boarding school. So when you think about her experience, it's different than mine. I didn't have to, she didn't go home. You know, she, that was her environment. She lived in, she breathed it, she witnessed it. She probably went home and made friends with folks and saw how they lived, you know, starting at a younger age that she probably was able to practice flexing that muscle a little bit differently and way more frequently. Um, and like, you know, using her, her abilities more and more because she's learned it earlier, you know, and been open to it. So when she got to Colgate where we met, you know, she probably started to still use it then and like continue to use that moving forward. So I wanted to say that example because I do think like we sometimes just have to like close our eyes and just go for it. <laughs> and you you really like have perfectly set up what was my next question, right? Because I think a lot of us have experience, have an experience like yours with respect to a PWI where you go, but it's like you're, you've identified a subculture and that's what you latch onto. It's like the friends that you have there that you're cool with, like the one or two people you guys are ride or die or the, the, the black network or whatever it is. Right. And then, so I, I have this experience often when I talk to fellow alums of Penn, where I went, where I meet these folks at some event, like, Oh, you went to Penn and I know it's coming. Like they're about to ask me, do you know so-and-so or did you, were you involved in this? And I have zero point of reference because that was not my experience. So one of the things I think about often is when kids who are now entering college come to me for advice about how to maximize the experience or frankly, how to just survive at a, you know, in college generally, but particularly at a PWI um, and a PWI that does not have any type of significant diversity numbers. If someone comes to you and asks you that, that asks you that question based on what you know now, and the things that we've discussed, do you tell them to work harder to assimilate? Is that advice you would give them? No, I would frame it differently. I would mm-hmm. definitely, I would say it, but frame it differently. I think I mentioned my best friend earlier because she was kind of a gateway for me because I was a little bit more like, not shy, but a little bit lukewarm to warm me up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I kind of have to feel out the situation, suss it out, and then I will open up to people. Um you know, I've always been that way. And she's just more of a like on the entry, like, hey, everybody. Welcome. This is me. I am here. I am present. Um, and through her, you know, I was able to experience a lot more things. So I would say one thing I regretted in high school was not um, taking advantage of the access to people, places and things. Um, I did a, a lot way better job in college. Um, I would just tell them, like, do what you love and make friends with as many people as possible. Not to be fake, just to get mm-hmm. to know people. You're practicing how to make friends, how to build a network when you're in college. Um, you know, everyone is like, what do you, you know, what do you, I'm like, don't, if you want to be pre-med, that's probably the only reason why you need to go a certain route. Anything else? No one cares. Like do all the things you love. I got my first job out of college strictly off a resume built off of activities I did in my college years. That's it. 
very different generation. Now you have to have an internship. There's tons of opportunities to do that, but you really utilize your resources, right? As much as possible. Like I went to a way smaller PWI than you, (laughs) Um, you know, so like we were able to kind of rally and kind of utilize our resources as a group, but also kind of like be a part of these chunky moments, um, either as a creative or you're jumping in, there's like, there was a creative arts house and they had like different organizations. So like latch onto something, latch onto something that actually has, you know, tethering points to the university itself to make change. Um, I think, you know, excuse me, definitely through a lot of the BLM stuff, there was a lot of sit-ins, a lot of things happening. And they were like, oh, we heard y'all used to do this and do that. And I'm like, yeah, you can still do that. It's the same university. It's just different staff. And then it's just different types of students. So like, it's there. I'm like, let me tell you something. We were like in the Chinese food store, like in the little college town, like when we went to visit for like maybe homecoming or something or alumni visit. And I said, go to student activities tomorrow and ask them about to pull up the records for, I can't remember the club we used to be a part of. Um, Pull up the records for Black Culture Club, for example. And ask them what it, what is the records of the hit, of like the kind of activities they did. I said they'll know because we have one print shop in one student building that probably has all the files from every every party associated with a certain job bill code, right? This is a marketing term, right? Like, oh, you use your resources, but go ask them. Can you help me figure it out? I said they have nothing else to do. Like, literally, it's two people sitting in activities office meant to be your resource. So do that. And if you can't find it and you don't like this purpose statement, make your own. You literally have to fill out a form. You get $200 for free. Then you can start doing activities, applying for more budget, you know, and create your own stuff. I said, this is just practice for real life. Hopefully they take away at least being involved, <laughs> you know, if not starting their own club, um, if not starting their own thing on campus. But I'm like, that's how you make change and have presence. And that'd be the advice I would give them. Um, and I, I always push them like, and also just don't, like collaborate just amongst each other. You have to collaborate outside of our community, which is something we did. We get more budget. We get to bring out bigger people. I'm like, all of it is just a tactical approach. But I have friends till this day, and I was looking through my my Facebook just because I was looking for a picture of a friend. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was part of a, a dance group. And I still talk to probably 25% of the women that were on the team that I graduated with, all white women all different parts still have the love because we have all of the same memories of like dancing together and just having a good time. Know nothing about their back end story. Like don't know who their parents are. Don't know anything, but like that is what resonates with people. Um, and that is where you connect, you know? And I think that that would be a huge part of my advice to them. It's not about assimilating. It's about like utilizing your resources. Part of it is getting to know people that are not like you. And you should absolutely do that because if you don't, you won't know how to do that in the real world. Because nobody looks like us when you come to school like ours. No one looks like us when we get out in the competitive world, you know, and we can't just cling to each other. Um, I'm sure you have notes on the side that have seen. I've had a very, very hard run in dealing with, you know, some African-American colleagues or, you know, more superior leadership staff in some of my career. So life cannot just be dependent on each other. It's just not meant to be that way as much as I, you know, I have met even more amazing people from my community that have helped me and boosted me up. I've still met a small amount of people that's created work trauma for me that have not worked out in that vein, you know, and I've genuinely met, you know, white women, white men who have just been as much of a booster. I have a Hispanic, you know, male right now who has been, was my first manager of all time when I started working, literally has like a 
sent my resume in for more jobs than anybody else I've, I've ever had in my life. Anybody else, you know? And it goes to show that when you really connect with people, people get you, they will champion you no matter what. And that's what sticks with them. So that would be what I would try to push them to start building then. <laughs> so they would be better than I was when I started. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about with respect to the manifestation piece and that, uh, because I, I can relate. I, I've had difficult experiences with people who look like me. I've had difficult experiences with women. Um, but I've also had one phone call completely changed my life that was made by somebody who doesn't look like me at all. Right. Um, or a man or what, or a white man that has happened. And, and so, and this it was one of the things that we talk about on the show and, and that we don't shy away from the difficult conversations about obstacles that are unique to us as black people, but we do not wallow there. Mm-hmm. And we try to find what are the lanes and the strategies that we can use also to overcome that? So it doesn't mean that they don't exist, but you are absolutely right um, in that while no one's de- denying the history uh, of, in terms of difficulty that we've, we've had to come through and nobody's denying the difficulty that may still exist, there are allies and there are advocates and people that will put you in a position to get money, to reach the next level of your career, to increase yeah. your notoriety and exposure uh, as well. That is absolutely true. Yes. So let's get into the career trajectory. You mentioned that your first job you got just based on things on your resume from activities. Now you've mentioned the the arts piece, your interest in dance, the athletics, but like, what was your career goal in in school? I went into college wanting to be a lawyer. Mm. I was like, I want to be a lawyer. And then I found out you have to go to law school. And I said, wait, I got to wait three more years to make money and to be independent? That's how my brain was working at the time. And I said, "Mm, I don't know about this. And then you have to take poli sci 101, which is always taught by like these new professors. Um, I also was like newly dating this guy at the time, my sophomore year when I took it. Um, And I missed class a lot, young adult things. But because I missed class a lot, I was not connecting to the work. Um, And that made me feel like I was sitting in a room mostly not without anybody looking. I was probably the only Black person in the room. And that didn't happen quite often in, in high school at all, even. And I just, and I think the professor just, I didn't click with her. I was like, so everybody who wrote an article is a theorist? I said, that does not make sense, ma'am. Like, so now we're talking about this person's theory. And I pretty much didn't do well in that class. And I said, I guess I don't have a, I just, law isn't it for me. Then I quickly started to get involved in other things um, and kept like just being involved in activities. And I just was like, all right, I'm going to do PR. I don't know where I got this from. I probably was watching Sex in the City. I don't even know. <laughs> Shout out to Samantha. <laughs> she made it look sexy. Um, I had no idea what was happening. And like, I was like, maybe it's marketing. So one thing I did every year is I went to, we, so Hoga is like an hour south of Syracuse University. And obviously they have way more access to tools. So they had an annual communications consortium that um, I would go every year. Every year, I never learned my lesson because also, obviously, our career services was not the best because they never prepped us for when you're supposed to actually apply for internships. I would, the fair was like in April or like March. I always missed internships, um, but I would go to collect pamphlets to learn more about everyone. Um, so I was going my junior year, you know, going to PR agencies, learning all the different things. And then there was like, there was an alumni weekend that happened um, and there was this woman, I forget her first name, something Hall. She worked in PR and she was African-American woman. Well, I was, yes, 
I'm, I don't know if she teeter-totter with Caribbean background. I can't recall from my conversations, but it was the first time I'd ever seen her because there's not a lot of Black women that come back <laughs> from alumni. You know, a lot of people, a lot of Black folks from Colgate either are super involved or they don't come back at all, which is a huge problem. And went to all these different things and I sat with her and I said, hey, you know, you want to know what you, what you do? She's like, listen, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do PR, but I don't, she's like, do you know what PR means or what we do? I said, I have no idea. She was like, let me tell you. <laughs> this is me, like my junior year, like, I don't know, like y'all do stuff with consumers, whatever. Um, and she's like, all right. So, and her explanation like kind of passes me, but she pretty much says PR is just a lot of writing, right? You're writing to get, you know, communication out to consumers, right? Marketing is tools and, and ways, you know, that you are engaged with consumers to get them to buy things. So PR is a little more passive. And she's like, wait, you got to write a bunch of stuff? Yeah. She's like, it's a lot of strong writing, especially when you come in at your level. You have to focus on the writing part and like more reactiveness and the, the planning of it. And marketing, you know, you definitely have more interaction with consumers. And I said, I think I want to do that. So started to lean more into marketing um, and obviously still did do, still did student activities. So by my senior year, I went to the same communication consortium <laughs> and I was like, all right, she ready. Let's go. Let's do, let's start getting all the pamphlets. Let's start having a conversation. She is ready. She's, you know, I walked up to the largest global ad agency in the world and said, so what do y'all do? The lady goes, okay, so what do you want to do? And I, again, the ignorance, right? I didn't even know from a communication standpoint that like it was advertising. Right. I thought it was marketing and PR. I didn't even know what I thought advertising was part of marketing, which it is. But, you know, didn't really fully understand it and didn't really like get that you had to tap in to understand the different layers to things. Right. Um, And she was like, well, here's a pamphlet. I would suggest you go to such and such place, which is Momentum. She's like, you should go to Momentum Worldwide. Right. Because when I asked her, she was like, what do you want to do? I said, I'm really curious about marketing. I really love to do events you know, hoping I can go to a place that can do a little bit of both. She's like, well, we don't do that. We do a traditional advertising that's ads, TV. I was like, okay. Um, She's like, but I'd recommend that you go to Momentum Worldwide. They do exactly what you're thinking. I said, okay, thank you so much. Apologies. I'll definitely look you guys up. <laughs> like, ugh, red, red in the face if I could be. So I go to Momentum. Remember this woman till this day, Susie Kurtz. I go up to her and she's like, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do events and marketing. And I'm really passionate about it. And I'm super involved with it on campus at, you know, on campus right now. And it's just something that I think I'd be great at. I just find so much zest in it. And she was like, oh, great. Okay, like, let's talk a little bit more. So, you know, we chat a little bit more. She asked me some questions, you know, you have turned on the switch. I gave her all the, you know, the sprinkles, the sparkles, the pizzazz. And she was like, okay, great. I would love for you to come tomorrow to do an interview. So I'm like, what? Because again, I've been going to this this fair and not knowing what the hell it's supposed to be for. Don't know what the outcome I'm going for, but I know I need to be in a space. I need to educate. I need to like under, like I just need to be around information to understand what's happening here. Because I have no base level. I have no one in my family that knows anything about the careers I want to go into. And I had the interview the next day. She's like, I would love to bring you to New York and didn't hear from her for like three weeks. Mm. So it's like April, right? Graduate in May. I'm still like, uh, what's happening? Then she calls me. I think the end of May, early June. And she's like, great. I would love for you to come to New York City office and meet. It's not the role you positionally, you know, applied for and interviewed for. We had something else that should be great in mind for. And I ended up interviewing. They loved me. And I joined a team that was like a random catch-all team um, to work on Verizon at the time. Then Verizon Wireless turned into regular Verizon on any kind of rollout plans they have. So I worked with... Um, Swag Guy Ed Scott, 
um, another guy, Edwin Hincapie, <laughs> Hincapie, and then um, another, um, another, and it was just me. I was, it was the three of us, right? And I was supporting that account. And we kind of worked on a couple different things. And those two men have been like, have given me some amazing advice throughout my career. Edwin Hincapie is the, the man that has submitted my resume for most jobs than anybody I've ever met in my life. And that's how I figured out I got there and I was like, I'm with my people. Like, I get it. I love it here. Like, what? Like, I could you not. I had to do, we had to, we were launching um, Blackberry Storm. And like to think about the things I've done in my career is hilarious. So we all brainstormed in a room. Momentum is like a very traditional agency, but like very creative space, right? Um, with the production team for Blast, we pitch all these ideas. So we we dwindle it down to a global, like a, a national tour where people can um, go into this like storm box, grab coupons to win a chance to do a storm. So I was traveling to Seattle. I was, you know, traveling to all these little places that no one else wanted to go to because I was <laughs> the assistant account executive, but I was able to travel for work at like 22, 23, right? My manager and like go out to like corporate dinners. And then we had to like use when Google Maps is brand new on, on the scene. Let's use Google Maps. It's a really new tool. People are really in the comment section. Let's drop pins because People were using pins back then. You remember it. No one mm-hmm. used it before at all. <laughs> and let's use the pins and create a specific map so people can go on, on a scavenger hunt. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm with my people. Like, this is so cool. Like, out of the box thinking, this is different. So I just fell in love with the industry that is now known as experiential marketing. That like, Momentum used to call it fidgetal, right? The meeting of the, the digital and the physical space. And they used to try to coin that word when they sold in things because it was a brand new concept like social media is right now, where you're like selling an influencer marketing and like trying to make it make sense. So that's mm-hmm. what we were doing experiential at the time. And I've literally like gone through my whole career between that and a, a couple different things. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that you found your first job that you absolutely loved because that's rare. Like, and for most people, you start your career, even if it's in your chosen field and the field that you're passionate about, you're the bottom rung, right? So you are paying your dues, doing the scut work that nobody wants to do or the tedious things, usually preparing people to go on the road, but not being able to go with them. So the mm-hmm. fact that you've had, you had a seat at the table for lack of a better term, and then also you were able to execute those things was unheard. That's, that's just unheard of. So did you, I think at that age, sometimes we don't realize when we have it good, or did you realize like, no, this is it. Like, this is, this is, a step above or a cut above what a lot of people my age are experiencing. I don't think I realized that until I was about 25, 26 when, when I had like that, my little trauma experience, um, you know, I mean, I had two, but I kind of was able to bounce back quickly from the first. So I had a very unfortunate experience, which is why I push people to get to know folks outside of your immediate comfort zone um, and build strong relationships. Um, I had a director. So I I made it through the recession, right? So 2008, I graduated college, um, was on this team. We did a bunch of stuff. And then Momentum had to do a bunch of cuts because it was a recession. I made it. I was one of, I was probably the only like assistant account executive that made it through that because I think everybody either left or were brand new. Um, so I was able to stay on and I ended up working on a project there and I had a really bad um, hiccup situation where I got promoted. So the, the manager above me, um, but no one came under me when I got mm. promoted, right? Um, she got more responsibility. So I did as well. And she got overwhelmed with a bunch of things and in a situation with creative, something was produced 
um, that was produced with the wrong person identified and no one, no one pointed out except for the actual person in the picture, person in the picture, wrong, wrong title. When it was, when it was literally when they're walking in through when it was hung up, no one, no one caught it, that person. So little old me, the bottom of the totem pole of the team got all the flack for that. I thought I was going to get fired. Like I got pulled into, which again, when I think about the big picture of it, I should have never been responsible for something like that. Um, Production had to like, obviously they have, because production is used to pulling, but they have to produce it in 24 hours and replace it. Um, And the production guy wasn't even mad about it. And he's the one who had to do all the work. He was just like, these things kind of happen. He was like, it's kind of funny though. (laughs) Cause he was like, and he was like, the guy wasn't even funny. And I had, and at the time I worked on this tour where I was the main contact for every single leader that was bringing in their group. So like I had a relationship with this person. I went to them personally and I apologized like, oh, it's fine, honey. I know you're doing a lot. Like totally fine. That person was upset. Production was upset. The whole team was upset. I got the I got the brunt of it. I got put on a pit. Um, mm. Got put on a pit. Um, which and I didn't. Those who don't know what that means, performance improvement plan, right? Okay, yes. And I would think that anybody watching or listening can understand that that's a mistake. That is not a pit worthy mistake. Okay. Right. Um, the person who is responsible on a staffing plan for final approving all creative to go to print is my manager who did not get in trouble. I got in trouble. She should have gotten in trouble. I got in trouble. So that is where you learn the politics, ladies and gentlemen, where my director at the time was trying to make the manager a little, her little like protege, her little like she wanted to be a hero. So I kind of got turned into this like, you know, unorganized, you know, kind of situation and create a narrative that of myself that wasn't the narrative of me. Um, and I let somebody control that narrative for me in that time. Um, so and I'm making blasting through the pit. I was excited about the project. They were like, oh, create a concept, blah, blah, blah. Here comes the director. Oh my gosh, you're amazing at pre- presenting. And I go, yeah, I know. Like, I'm cool. I'm dope. I know what it is. Like, you're just out here being a hater, but I didn't say that. So, you know, I went through, I went through that. And luckily at that time, so Edwin was the first manager. He, he left. She was terrible as, a, as an actual leader. Literally terrible. The next manager that came in is a mentor till this day towards me. She has a lot of experience in this space, the niche space we're working on that project. Um, and she was just amazing at kind of keeping me calm through a lot of things. Um, and also kind of going to bat for me. Um, but she was also a consultant. Um, so after him came my now like, another mentor. So there were two black women that came in at around the same time. Both are still my mentors and in my life till this day. And I think that's a testament to a person's character. Um, mm-hmm. For sure, when you're able to meet people in and out and all of the people I met in the very beginning of my career, I can still call them till this day. And just, you know what I mean? Even as a young whippersnapper, I've made an impression. They understand my spirit. And I think that's important as a leader and as a professional holistically. She came in, she came and was like, I'm just here to try something different. And she was a whirlwind of energy that I like fell in love with eventually. Like when we got on the road, I fell in love with it. Cause I was like, she's real weird. Like I don't get her. And then I started to meet her and I'm like, oh, okay. No, she's amazing. She's like, we got to get you up out of here. I'm not staying. I'm wrapping it up and I'm throwing deuces. I'm out. So <laughs> she did that. Um, and then after her was another black woman. So at that time I was also trying to get up out of there. Cause I'd been through my pip at the time. Um, and now our company is looking into a whole different approach onto this project that we're doing. They're looking to actually invest. Um, so that was changing everyone's job. If we were all going to stay there, I was the most senior person. 
because I'd been there from day one on this project, Evolution to Evolution. And obviously, you know, this Black woman came in as the manager. I kind of cultured through things, got her on boarded, like did a whole bunch of one-on-ones, made it through the whole tour. I've worked on a, on a tour that was between 11 to 14 cities, like semantics. But And then I was in charge of all hospitality for the finale concert weekend. Killed it. By killed it. Like every single person who attended said he did a great, I found a, a, a Black, you know, producer. He killed it in all the things he did, got everything done. I can tell you I had minimal blips at this point in the whole entire thing that happened. Two weeks after we came back that finale weekend, I got pulled into the HR office with these two women. Um, the director was a white woman. The manager was a Black woman. And HR basically looked me in my face in in kind of a discomfort and said, sorry, unfortunately, you were put on a pip. And from then till now, you didn't improve. So we have to let you go. If I knew what I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I would have logged everything. Right. The company. Um, but again, I'm a person that wears my heart on my sleeve and my passion on my sleeve. And I think that one experience jolted me a bit to no longer work at a large corporation with the politics that happen. Because I'm like, I didn't even get like, it'd have been different if, if like, yes, to save people's jobs, I would have probably been let go on like a, like, hey, you're getting laid off because mm-hmm. that would have been respectful. You know what I mean? Give me two weeks to shut my expenses, close out the account. Instead, literally, as I come back, like to sit down from being out of office and we had days off, I didn't do my expenses. I didn't send any emails to anybody to tell them like, hey, great job after after we finished anything. I just basically had to get myself and walk out. I basically said, I need a moment. And I stayed in that room and I cried for 20 minutes. I was so devastated. Mm. Um, got my stuff, um, got ready. You know, I think that was like an early fall situation. I told my mom the situation at the time and we ended up like I was home, like trying to apply to jobs. I told the manager that left previously because she says, I'm out. I got, I'm working on some stuff. We're going to get you about it there. Just give me some time. I'll get some stuff together. By January that following year, we're starting a new job in that agency with her. Um, I had applied for a job that was a bit too senior. The the CEO of that company really loved me, said, we're working on some stuff. Stay tuned. We might have something for you. I went to Trinidad to take a break with my family. And I don't know when I was coming back, but you know, I got a call and they were like, you got to come back and do an interview. I said, mommy, I got to go. We got to get up out of here. <laughs> you know, um, you know, re-interviewed with someone else. And basically they, I started working that next year. So that really didn't give me time to really heal from that trauma. Um, it was when I left that agency. Um, uh, so then following job after Momentum, I ended up working um, at, in spirit marketing. And that's where I spent majority of my career, like till this day. Brought up by my mentor. Um, but I worked on, on Hennessy Cognac for like two and a half, three years. And when I left that job, it was, that was my dream job. If anybody asked you till this day and asked me, what was your dream? I said, that was my dream job. I worked on building building a brand. I contributed to a team in my own unique way. Um, you know, I still to this day see some things that I talked about like over like nine years ago that are still implemented in their like promotional marketing plans, like their layouts. And I worked with a team of really dope people that just wanted to do good work and were good at good with each other. You know what I'm saying? Yes, like family, where like you Point a finger at an event and said, da, 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 da. don't talk to me like that. And the next, and then three, three hours later, cheers with like the drink and be like, good job. I apologize. It was real hectic. I understand, but let's just not do that again and keep it moving. It was super healthy. Mm-hmm. It was unhealthy, but healthy. But I love that job. Like really 
because I'm always ambitious, yearning to like start something on my own. I was like, at this point, I've been doing this. Like, let's just, you know, went to another agency after that where I did a book where I ended up getting laid off unexpectedly. Please so listen this to my is now, Right. So you got let go straight up on the first one. And then what Honestly, were the circumstances? Wow. Yes. <laughs> what were the cir- circumstances of now getting laid off? I went to an agency that honestly, it was a mess. I can't say anything, not because I'm under NDA, but just because it's just better that way. But mm-hmm. I worked at an agency on a spirit brand where I was pulled in to start um, a influencer program. Um, I ended up working under an old client who was just dope to work with. I really loved her support um, as a leader, but the whole agency was a mess. And I went in there, knew it was a mess, but I didn't know how, how messy it was. Um, in my seven months there, Seven months. I had four different title changes. That's and- crazy, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> but the title changes was like, we were in a creative meeting and they were like, all right, we need to restructure this program, blah, blah, blah. So it was a joint partnership between two um, two corporations, one very large, one smaller. And obviously the smaller one was, this, I was working the support agency for that, that corporation. It was just a mess. They're sitting there like, what title do you want? I said, well, I love to get programming manager or like we can do programming director. They're like, mm-hmm. I... I was like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Changes title and email. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, the circumstances of this is the person that, so basically they, they were struggling to keep the business essentially the way it was established. Um, unfortunately, there was way too much product left on the shelves that, that was necessary. They were not making their, hitting their numbers from a sales perspective. Um, and they didn't know how to move along with the business. Um, so they brought in another person at a VP level who had sales experience um, and tried to shift me in a, around in a way where the program would sit under sales, where I've always had a program sitting under marketing. Um, I essentially, and the guy that I knew came from my previous, was a, a person I knew and I had partied with at my previous job. So I thought, okay. But I also knew we were going into a sales route, which there was another young lady who, um, who basically like was there, but that was kind of her sole job and what she loved to do. And she was kind of working in that field. That was just never something I liked. I never, I never wanted to do sales. I always wanted to do marketing. And he was like, we had this meeting. Well, you guys are moved into the sales program and we're doing this way that it was a whole restructure. And like, I was just so swamped. I didn't even read any of the signs happening. Mm-hmm. I was busy, like doing a bunch of things. So eventually I knew, but I knew things were shifting, but I didn't think it was going to be bad because there's nobody else's agency that can do what I do right? Stand corrected. So I ended up coming back from um, doing probably like running some events or like traveling or whatever. And then he sets up a meeting for us to do like a one-on-one touch base. And I'm like, Hey, um, so he comes by, he's like, picks me, you know, walks by from his office to mine. It's like, Oh, come on. He's like, and stops me right outside the door and says, Hey, so we're about to go meet with HR right now. Um, so you're, he's like, so you're going to get, you're going to get laid off. I just wanted to give you that heads up. And I said, what? Okay. And I go into the meeting and I'm like this. And we're sitting there talking and the HR lady and I was like, so what's the money like? (laughs) Cause I'm just in disbelief. Like y'all killed me for like six months. Right. So what I ended up doing was taking, cause in like at the time I was working in New York state, you can't take all your vacation time. Like you don't get paid. Like California is the only state you get paid your vacation time. Mm -hmm. So I took, I said, all right, what is my last day? I renegotiated, um, you know, my severance. I closed out all my business and I looked at the guy sideways like, okay, he's like, you're doing this. I was like, one thing about me is I have dignity. 
one thing about me is I'm not about to just be petty about something because one thing I know is your legacy is always going to sit, you know what I mean? Like you're going to mm-hmm. leave a good or a bad taste in somebody's mouth and how you manage yourself in business is your integrity. And I'm always going to have integrity. You're never going to say that I like intentionally bluff something up because that follows you. And I know because the white woman that, that fired me unjustly still to this day has tainted so many people that probably can't properly find a job. Like mm-hmm. I legit end up seeing her in my office two jobs later and hitting my coworker. And she's like, what? And immediately sends an email. This is not it. <laughs> she was like, I got you, girl. <laughs> um, because it was like, it wasn't just my story. You know, I had actually met, I'm trying to remember, there's some people I met, but I've actually sat down and went to drinks with this person who worked at a company with said person and was like, yeah, da, da, da. And he's like, I was working with this person, said her name. And I said, wait, such and such? She goes, yes. I said, ooh. Order another round of drinks. We got some time to talk about it. And, you know, if anything, I always knew about that. Um, but what reinforced it is that my first director at Momentum, um, Ed Scott, he came back at Momentum and worked under this, this director. And I was like, hey, before your contract is up, can we grab drinks? Like, it seems like you've been traveling a lot. He was like, yeah, no problem. We grab drinks. And he goes, he didn't say a bad word per se. He said, Janisa, all I can tell you is be a good person and do good work and everything else will fall in line for you. He says, don't do what, what you see as an example to you every day in this moment with a said person. He was like, because that's all you need to be because you're really smart. You get it. Like you'll, you will learn the work and you can do the work. Just understand you're capable, be a good person and things will come back to you tenfold. You don't need to scheme. You don't need to be petty. People will remember who you are if you are a good person and you do good work. And that stuck with me. And till this day, people are like, what is your work mantras? I'm like, I want to be a good person. I want to do great work. I want to make history. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's simple as that. I can do that anywhere. Right. But I also can do that anywhere with the right team and people. But th- that definitely sent me into a place getting let go in that regard. Um, I had a specific goal for that job move. That was a one year boost that was going to get me to a place in my career. Um, that was good. I literally took a 20k pay pay increase. That's why I left my dream job. 20k mm. more, start my own my own, <laughs> and like I was able to work in an environment that was very much like autonomous for me. And that was what I wanted. My next role, I got it. it didn't really get me. <laughs> it didn't give what it was supposed it really to give. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, I left there and actually from that job, I didn't work for a year. I fell into a really deep depression. A year? A year. I did not work for a year. And not because I didn't apply. I think I just was looking from an idealistic perspective, which is definitely a part of my character and being, which is great for creativity, not for realistic strategies. But um, I really um, was looking at my, you know, my parents at the time, I was literally like living on my own for three years in my own like first floor apartment in a brownstone in Brooklyn, in, in Bed-Stuy, an upcoming neighborhood, traveling, working, doing all the things to, you know, having a Platinum American Express card, having this, this credit card, doing, and finally getting to that place of independence as a young adult, where I was like, ah, my plan is working. I'm mm-hmm. not here. And getting laid off knocked all the pillars from under me. Um, and I didn't have any other plan. I didn't have a huge savings. I didn't need it because I was paying my bills on time. 
I had credit cards. I, I started just starting having credit cards to stand back on. And but my parents were buying a house for their first, you know, house. And I was I'm like, all right. So in a year, when you guys get it together, I'll move in. I'll save some money. So I had a whole plan, you know. But as you're young, you realize your plans don't always work the way it's supposed to be. So you have to be ready to bounce back, pivot however you need. And I was not ready at all. I was not ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what knocked me off my feet and like contributed to me getting into this kind of definitely into a depression. I didn't even know that existed to be. I didn't know there was a word for it. I just knew something was wrong. Right. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 